Welcome to episode 180 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samples. Just over six months ago, after a lifetime of resistance, I started running for exercise. Prior to that, my plan was to play dead of chaste. Seriously, running has never been related to anything on my bucket list. Fast forward, and I'm breaking personal records, PRs, left and right. With the cold weather in Boston, I've resorted to doing most of my runs at a gym. Me and treadmills never really got along. There's a certain amount of coordination needed that I thought I just lacked. But now, I'm going in and setting the dial to run at 5.8 miles per hour for three miles. That's a 10-12 pace. 10 minutes and 12 seconds pace for three miles. Then, every few days, I pushed myself to go a little faster. First, 6.0 miles per hour for one mile, then 6.1, 6.2, and even 6.3. That translates to a 10 minutes per mile, 9.56, 9.49, and even 9 minutes and 38 seconds per mile, setting a new PR every few days. I'm setting new goals that seemed impossible, utterly impossible, and meeting them. July 21st, 2019, I recorded my first run of my own, and the pace was 15 minutes and 17 seconds for 2.88 miles. I didn't jump from 15 minutes, 17 seconds to 10 minutes, 12 seconds for a three-mile run. That took six months and consistent effort. Honestly, the goal at the beginning wasn't to run a sub-10-minute mile. I was excited when I ran my first sub 12 minute mile, just for one mile. Something happened though, as I started to see progress. I pushed myself a little further or a little faster each week. I discovered abilities I didn't know existed and a desire to do more than I ever thought possible. Slow increments over time resulted in me shaving over 15 minutes off a three mile run. It makes me wonder what else is possible, aside from new running PRs. Your challenge for this week. It's the beginning of the year around the time when most resolutions begin to fade. Resolutions are often around big goals being achieved. Stick to your resolution by cutting your goal in half and then setting incremental milestones. Celebrate every small achievement and six months later, a year later, look back at all that you have accomplished, one small step at a time. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest is a practicing economist who finds efficiencies, solves challenging problems, and motivates people to implement change. She transforms corporate cultures, increases productivity through engaging, humorous, and action-packed keynote presentations one-on-one consulting, and as the author, co-author, or editor of 10 books on business, leadership, productivity, and personal finance. 
Her previous experience includes teaching at the U.S. Naval Academy, the U.S. Air Force Academy, and Hawaii Pacific University. She served 21 years on active duty in the Navy, retired as a commander, with specialties in human resources, logistics, intelligence, and security. Please join me in welcoming Mary Kelly. Hey, Rami, I'm so excited to be with you and your audience today. Mary, thank you so much for joining us from your office in Monument, Colorado. Uh, as you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, I'm not sure I really realized I had the skills to lead. I think other people saw those skills and encouraged me to move into positions of leadership. Now, the great thing about where I was, Robbie, in the military was you get those opportunities really early on. So I had leadership opportunities when I was at the Naval Academy. You know, you're 17 years old and you have leadership opportunities to lead people into teamwork, um, obstacles, uh, challenging problems, and your job is to figure it out. So a lot of leadership, I think people make it very, very complicated. And I don't think there's one definition, and I don't think it's um, overly complicated. It's it's not a necessarily a job title. It is what you do. It's a responsibility. And it's the ability to influence others in order to get them to do what you want. Yeah, so common purpose, influence. And I love this this piece about having early opportunities to take on leadership. Now, I'm imagining that it might have even started even earlier than that for you. I'm curious, Mary, what were you like, I don't know, on the, the playground? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what kind of kid were you? So in preschool, I, I was five years old and my teacher um, said, you know, Mary, you don't have to be in charge of everybody. And I was like, oh, but they need the help. So there was, I, I was always a little bit bossy. Um, in, but trying to be in a helpful way, even when I was about five. Um, and then growing up in, and in high school, I was very involved in clubs and activities and in leadership positions, student council, all that stuff. So some people, I think, gravitate to it. I was, even with all that, I was a painfully shy person. And even going to the military, I was fairly shy and didn't know what to say and felt socially awkward. And the idea of going to a new situation, like a lot of your audience members, going to a new situation, not knowing anybody there, for a lot of us, it feels like the first day of school all over again. And you walk in and you're like, oh gosh, are they going to like me? Is anybody going to talk to me? Will I be a, a dork? Because that was what I certainly felt like in most of my grade school and high school years. And then I got to go to the Naval Academy and uh, you kind of figure it out from there. I love this exposition of being someone who innately knows how to lead uh, from a place of good. You're trying to be helpful but also strongly identifies with being really shy and would rather not be seen. So it's interesting because leadership is usually about being seen, about yeah. stepping up into a spotlight, taking charge, saying this way. But if you're painfully shy and you have those skills to lead, like how do you manage that at a young age? Like was anyone noticing that you were in this sort of quandary? If, any, if no one else was noticing, I certainly was. One of my high school friends, actually at the time I was a sophomore and she said, you know, um, you're really stuck up. And I was like, what? Because I certainly didn't feel like I had any reason to be. And, you know, I was like, why not? No, I'm not. And she said, well, you never talked to anybody. And I remember bursting into tears and saying, I don't know what to say. 
And I thought, wow, if that's how I'm being perceived, and again, it's not what we think we're projecting, it's what other people are perceiving. I thought, if that's what I'm projecting, I need to change this right now. And I need to put myself in a situation where I will be better at interacting with people, at being more socially confident, at those types of things. And I said, you know, I've got to go out I was pretty young. I was, you know, 13 or 14. Back in those days, you could work early. And I went and got a job also because I needed a job that dealt directly with frontline people. And I knew I needed that kind of training so that I would be better at dealing with people. And as you and your audience know, you know, working with other people and being able to communicate with people on their level to what is mattering to them on what they think is important, that's a real skill set. And so I was kind of, I'm very grateful for that person who gave me that, you know, hit upside the head with a two by four when I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it's harsh and you don't want to hear it, but also it is a, really a gift, particularly to have heard it at a time in life where you had choices to be made about changing that. It wasn't like you were so stuck in those patterns and you had developed some sort of a reputation that you could never, you know, ever erase or build upon, you know? And, right. and, yeah. And you, you knew that you had to sort of do the piece where you, you put yourself in a situation where you're just immersed, like it's the immersion therapy way forward, which is a real instinct that you had. I, I want to know how this leads to you joining the military and in particular the Navy. Like, you, did you know why you were going in? Did you have aspirations? Was there any kind, did you know you're going to be in for two decades? Like, or was it just sort of like the next possible thing? And you said <laughs> That's yes. That's such a great question. And so many people don't really know what the service academies are about. You know, we have the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. We have West Point in New York. We have the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. We also, by the way, have the two secret ones, which is the Merchant Marine Academy and the Coast Guard Academy that a lot of people don't realize are there. They're some of the best kept secrets um, for our young people ever. It's remarkable. But these five academies all serve to make military people and we don't ask you for a commitment of two decades. We ask you for a five-year commitment afterwards. And you might be interested to know, and your listeners might, that over 90% of naval officers are introverts, which I find very interesting. And this was one of my biggest shifts when I moved from being a military officer into business, and I'm kind of jumping ahead for a second, was you know, in the military, you're not supposed to promote yourself. And all of a sudden, when you're in business, for yourself, your job is to promote yourself. And I struggled for years and years. I didn't put my military rank on any of my stuff, even though that's kind of an important thing to know. Um, I didn't put certain other things that I thought would be self-aggrandizing, like I took my PhD off my business card because I did, you know, I didn't want people to think I was stuck up. And I'm like, wait a second. That's kind of a credentialing thing that you should use. So marketing myself was very, very difficult because again, in the military, your job as an officer is to promote and take care of the people working for you. And your boss's job is to promote you. You don't promote yourself. So that, that kind of leads into that and it fed into that sort of introverted um, area where you want to be a great leader, but your job is not to like, look at me, I am leading the charge. No, it is how are you going to best prepare your people so that they can be successful? I actually did not know that fine of a detail about leadership within the military, but it, it is an interesting place for introverts to thrive, right? Because a lot of the, the norms of leadership in civilian life require you to have a, a big 
showy presence to some degree, you know, a me, me, me presence. Mm -hmm. You can't disavow that and be a great leader. But within this this construct of the military, you could do that, which means that people who were like you, who were drawn to leadership, but didn't like the bells and whistles being shown on them, they're like found their home. And it sounds like that kind of helped you until you decided to go and be in business for yourself. And then the rules all changed on you. But what was that like? That must have seemed like, you know, literally the rules changed. Like, how do you know what the new rules even are? And how long did it take you to figure that out? Because I don't today think of you as someone who's, you know, this shy, reclusive, not sharing who you are person. You know what I mean? Like, it seems quite like you've made a journey. Oh, I've overcompensated. (laughs) Um, It helps that I've always really liked people. I just didn't know how to network, how to work as well as I probably should have. Partly because, um, you know, we were raised in a, you know, in a family that, you know, really rewarded modesty and humility and things like that. So that's kind of, those were kind of the values we were taught as kids. Um, but once I was let loose, woohoo, um, then it, then, you know, it's, it's a whole different story. I, it helps that I love people. Like I truly love people. And that I think makes it, um, a whole lot easier to connect with audiences. I think that all of my people working for me would say that I genuinely liked them, even when you know I had to correct them or if somebody made a mistake. They always knew I genuinely cared about them, and I thought I think that's really important. Um, there was one of my jobs; I was a chief of police, and I grew up in Texas, and um, you know, so guns are kind of you know part of my life growing up. So this wasn't really a big stretch for me, but I was chief of police. And one day, one of my uh, troopers came in and a cat had been hit by a car and there was these little baby kittens, I mean, tiny little kittens. And um, he goes, looks at me and goes, what do we do with them, ma'am? And it was cold outside. And I'm like, um, yeah. And I had to go to a meeting. So I grabbed these five kittens and I stuffed them into my pockets of my camouflage jacket. And I went to my meet because we had to keep them warm. They had to go back out on patrol. I didn't have somebody who, I, you know, we don't have personnel whose job is just to sit around and hold kittens. So I go to my morning meeting and there's all these big people there, all these grown up people. I'm in my camouflage and about halfway through you hear, meow, meow, meow. You know, my little kittens are starting to get hungry. Like people around me and I'm like, I got kittens in my pocket. And so every time the cats would make a noise, they'd all be like, <coughs> you know, everybody's covering for these kittens. Anyway, when um, we found homes for them, we fed them, we found homes for them, all these other things. And when I left that command, one of my people who gave up came back to thank me for that said, you know, I always knew you were going to take care of all of us the same way you took care of all the dogs and cats. And I thought that was exactly what, what you, your people should know that about you. They know that they're going to make mistakes because they're human, that they're going to have a learning process because that's what we do. But at the end of the day, you're always going to have their back. You're always going to support them. You're always going to try to promote them. You're always going to help them try to be better. And I think that's what's really important. That's all great signs of leadership too. Like true leadership really is about not just steering people in one direction, but promoting them so that their ideas get heard. And I think people sometimes don't equate those things together. And this is a great story that people saw that in you. And I imagine it helps their own like journey and their own like work ethic and, and how much they want to give to the team, knowing you're going to be there for them. Um, I also love this visual of you with the kittens in your pockets. Um, how long ago did you leave the military and start 
thinking about like was there was there a, a transition of thinking about being in business for yourself or was there like a I'm done and now I got to figure out what's next and then you found yourself in business for yourself there was a moment when the military said you're uh, you're too senior to go back to what we refer to as the sandbox in the in the Gulf and too senior means too old and all of a sudden you think oh I guess I am and then you need to start thinking about it um, so I did a total, so four years at the academy, then 21 years commissioned. So it was, you know, it was a good time for me to make that transition and learn how to be a civilian again. And I, when I was, my last job in the Navy, I was a professor at the Naval Academy. So I'm in uniform. Um, and oftentimes we would get asked to go do talks. Well, a lot of people don't like doing talks, especially remember 90% are introverts. So I was always getting called to go do talks. And I had you know, my economics program, uh, Futuronomics today, learn what you need to know, nobody cared. And then I would say another topic was, you know, updates on, you know, military training and nobody cared. But then somebody said, well, can you do something that's kind of fun? And I said, sure. And I didn't think very hard about it. And they said, well, what do you know? I said, I know leadership and I know dogs. I'll combine them. So I put together this talk and it was based on my dog and leadership and it had three very basic points reward good behavior don't reward bad behavior and be consistent and people just thought that was the most genius thing ever there was no prep there was no powerpoint there was no rehearsals there was no imagine this day in the fall no none of that it was just me talking about hey if you treat people like you treat your dog guess what? You're probably going to get really good work out of them. You know, when they do something right, you give them a treat. When they don't do something right, you don't reward them. Um, you know, when, if you don't want the puppy to jump on the couch, you don't let the adult dog jump on the couch uh, and you be consistent. Um, and you've got, you've got kids, you know what it's like. If you let the kid one time, but you let me stay up till nine o'clock last night, dad, you, you break the rules one time and all the rules go out, go out, the window. So you have to be really consistent and it's hard to be consistent. And that's one of the most difficult things for leadership. So I get called out to do that. That became a thing. And then people would call up and instead of asking for the Admiral, now they're asking for Commander Kelly because of the, the leadership dog talk, which I called master your world. And then I had a, a picture of a dog holding a lease, like a master, you know, your world. So I was trying to merge the Navy and my dog. It really doesn't work, but it seemed to. Anyway, so I was at a talk and um, there was a professional speaker there and he said, um, Hey kid, you're pretty good. And I was like, so now you got to remember I'm in my uniform. I'm in my little white outfit, my little hat, my little medals. And I was, so I get like an extra 10 points cause people are nice. And at the time, because my dog was being left alone a lot, if I did an event at night, I would bring the dog. Now this was in a wildly well-trained dog. Um, I showed this dog. She was Delta trained. She was there. I mean, she was this dog. So I could take her anywhere, do anything. Well, so I'm, I show up, I have a dog, I'm in uniform, like 10 points and then an extra 10 points for the dog. And he goes, you're pretty good. And I was like, thanks. He goes, so they pay you? And I said, no, I'm a civil servant. You know, I'm here to serve and all that. And he goes, huh? I go, they pay you? And he goes, yeah. He said, they, gave, they paid for my flight. They paid for my hotel. Uh, they took me to dinner last night at Roy's. And I was thinking, I like Roy's. And then um, he said, and they gave me a check. And I was like, Really? Because they could not figure out how to do a payment for my $26 a day parking in the garage. And then um, he goes, and I got a gift. And I was like, wow, I got the pen I stole from the hotel lobby. Yay. So I, I thought to myself driving home, one of us is doing this wrong. And if you can actually make a living doing this, 
then maybe I sh- this would be something I should investigate. So that's what I did. So when I left, when I retired out of the military, I was wildly fortunate and I had my first paid, paid speaking job without any, no website, no marketing, no nothing about three weeks later. And I thought, wow, this is easy. <laughs> I was so stupid. Um, and it went went well. And I thought, wow, I could I could do this. Now then I figured out you have to systematize it, you have to formalize it, you have to like throw in bells and whistles. You no longer have the uniform or the dog with you all the time. So you gotta professionalize it. And that's kind of how I started. You know, this this uh story about being somewhere speaking and having a professional speaker there. I've he- heard a variety uh of versions of this. Um, through the National Speakers Association. I mean, it comes up a lot and it's sort of the aha moment of, you know, someone who's doing it as part of a, a job, you know, they have me for you is through the Navy, but like people, you know, work for a company and the company sends them out to go do a talk. And then there is this like professional speaker who gets flown in, treated like royalty and paid and given a gift and all the things. And until that moment, it's like not a possibility. Like you don't know that that's a thing until someone sort of presents it to you. It sounds like in such a like crystal clear way, they were like, this is a path. And you were like, wow, there's a whole path. Um, and, you know, this, I think it helps make the decision to leave the Navy and retire uh, a little easier because you have a sense of a path. I'm curious, as you made that shift, I imagine there's a lot of challenges that you were facing um, and you named a few of them earlier, but I'm curious how you tapped into your network as you were making that shift. And what, what did that look like? Who were you seeking support from? And what was the kind of support you were looking for? Great question. I love that. Well, one of the things that we do in the military when you, you know, we give you boot camp to figure out how to be a military person. And then we give you um, a couple of days of transition that we're supposed to teach how to be a civilian again. And we learn things like um, don't bark at people, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's my, inter- my rephrasing of it, but you can't, you know, you can't tell people what to do. You can't tell civilians what to do. Like you tell military people what to do. So I just want to share with you. My older brother was a Marine helicopter pilot. He did 26 years. His wife was in the Navy. My husband was a force recon uh, Marine. My sister was in the Air Force. Her husband was in the Navy. My younger brother's Navy pilot. So all of us communicate perfectly together in short, choppy sentences. All of those other things that the rest of the world uses, uh, for example, you know, you travel, you do, you get to Boston, you send a text back to your friends, and you go, "Hey, just want to let you all know, um, you know, we made it to New Jersey just fine. Everything went great. Traffic was a little rough, but we made it. All's good. Love you." Yeah, we don't do that because the fact that you're texting me tells you you're you're alive. We don't need to say that. That's redundant. Um, the fact that you're communicating with me, see, the love is implied. We don't have to say that either. So when I go places, we just say SOD, which is uh, safe on deck. When a plane catches the wire to land on an aircraft carrier, it's called SOD, safe on deck. So when I get someplace, it's it's not, hey, everybody, just got to Dallas, so excited, great shopping here, terrific food, going to see my friends, all that. No. Six letters. SOD, safe on deck, DFW, the airport code. That's it. The rest is all implied. See, it's that to us is perfect communication. That's not perfect communication with a whole lot of other people. So one of the things I had to learn, and it came from my sister-in-law, was I have to communicate in a way that works for the other person. 
it's not about what's going on in my head. It is about what works for them. And most people think they're good communicators and they're not. If you think you're over communicating, you might be breaking even. People are not understanding nearly the things that you think they are. And in the military, we all speak the same language or close to it. You know, the Army and the Air Force might have some differences and so on, but you got to remember, I trained with the Royal Navy, the Australian Navy, the, the New Zealand Navy, Singapore, Japan. Uh, we do exercises where we, we'll bring in 10 or 15 countries and we all work together. All the navies in the world operate the same way. We all do. The armies operate the same way. So there's this whole consistency. And then we get out in the civilian world and you people are just chaotic everywhere. <laughs> so, so it was something I had to learn. Um, I will tell you, though, when it comes time to building my business, those the, the, system, the systematic process brain from the military makes building a business easy. And let me, can I tell you why? I mean, I think you're, you're it, it might be interesting. Because I, when I'm looking at my business, I'm take, looking at it as a mission. This is my mission. I have a vision. I have a mission. My job is to get it done. That's it. There's no, oh gosh, I'll do it tomorrow. Oh gosh, I'll put this off. Oh gosh, maybe somebody else will do this for me. None of that exists. Our job is to get it done. So all the checklists, the systems, the process brain, and the discipline that really worked for me in the military really works for me in my business now. And then how do the people come in? So you were talking about communication and how you, know, you had to learn how to communicate properly. And in some ways, I say properly within a civilian context because um, you were doing it great within a military context. Um, I think that a lot of this is sort of like handshakes. I always, in a part of my talk, I talk about handshakes and it's a social you know, cue, but not one that most people have been taught and they don't know how to use it and they don't know where does it fit and, and what does it imply and how do you break a social cue mm -hmm. and all these things. And, and, and similarly, how to communicate well in a civilian context is not taught explicitly, mm -hmm. but you had to learn it because mm -hmm. <laughs> you were coming in from such a different like mindset. Mm -hmm. But the people around you, I mean, you've have the decades of connections through your military service. And then you have the people that you just sort of have known throughout your life. Mm -hmm. How did those different communities support you as you made the shift? And, and who did you seek out? And what, what kind of support were you looking for? One of the best pieces of advice I got was to make 100 people that you know and would be willing to help you. So you make that list and then you say, hey, I'm not looking for a job. I'm not looking for you know, any of that, but I am looking for just a five-minute conversation um, with some advice if you would. And I got to tell you, picking up that phone was really hard. And many, a lot of my friends were in the same boat. I, they didn't know anything. You know, We're all just floundering around together. And remember... After you, after you go to an academy, you have to serve for five years. Um, and a lot of people do get out after five years. I thought I was going to be one of those people. I just have to confess because um, I, I just, I didn't ever knew anybody in the military growing up. I just thought, well, this will be a good way to give my life purpose and serve my country and all those things. But I really didn't know. And I just have to tell you that every job I thought, okay, maybe I'll get out. But every job I was having more and more responsibility, more and more um, uh, more and more management and leadership opportunities. I was in Asia most of my career and I was having a great time. I mean, what we get to do is phenomenal. So I just, I just need to throw that out there. So I contacted, I didn't have a hundred people that I thought would call and I didn't want to ask people for favors. 
And I viewed it as asking people for favors. I viewed it as marketing myself. I, I viewed it as icky. And what I found was, first off, number one, people want to help you. And they don't know how to help you, so you have to tell them. And you have to make it very clear what it is you want. And most people are afraid to ask. I certainly was. Most people don't know what they need. Um, like a lot of times when a catastrophe happens, people will say things like, well, let me know if there's anything I can do. Well, um, I had been in a situation where there's been catastrophes. I had no problem at all going, okay, what skill sets do you have? And people are like, what? I'm like, can you do this, 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 this? Because if you offer, I'm going to task you. And so people are like, oh, good. I'm like, I need you to go do this. I need somebody to do this. I need somebody to do this. But when it came time to building my business, I didn't know what people could do for me. So I didn't know how to ask or what to ask. So now I'm very clear about my ask. I will say, I would very much appreciate your help if you would, and it will take 60 seconds. So I'm, I'm very clear about managing my asks. And I think that's important. I think most people want to help other people. I come from that premise. And I think most people want to say yes when you ask them for a favor. This idea of, of identifying 100 people, it's such a concrete sort of example. Um, I actually had someone on, John Corcoran, who talks about his 50 conversations list. And mm. it's the 50 people that he wants to nurture a connection with over the next year. And then every day, five days a week, he reaches out to the next person on the list. Mm -hmm. So people will hear from him about every 50, 60 days-ish, um, mm -hmm. every two months. And, it, and you know, considering that most times the people that we, we should be nurturing connections with, we might only see once a year at a conference. Mm -hmm. If you could up that to three times a year, <laughs> that would be a big shift. Um, so coming up with, with ways to even do that a few times a week, but like mm -hmm. you said, calling them and saying, I'm looking for advice. I, want, I, I don't remember who first said this, but the whole, like, if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> right? Because, you know, people are like, uh -huh. you want money? Let me tell you what's wrong with your plan. Oh, oh you, want a, you want advice? This is really good. I think I want to support you in doing it. Here's some cash, you know? Like, um, people feel like they're invested more in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, they also like feeling like they know stuff. So people, I think asking for advice is a really strong, sort of next step when you're not sure what to do is well, like plus I learned yes you know I, I really I learned and my dad um had a business so I kind of grew up in a small business so it wasn't exactly a foreign idea and you know my you know I, I do have a, a degree in economics we have to take business classes and I taught you know business theory and things like that so in theory I knew what to do but uh that of course is very different than in practice and what you learn in business is relationships are everything and your reputation is everything. And the other thing that I really learned early on, because I wasn't desperate, and that was a nice thing. I was an I was an economist, so I'm you know I'm okay. Um, and I was I have a personal finance book out, so I, I mean I shouldn't be impoverished. So I wasn't desperate for jobs, which helped a lot. Um, but what helped me was okay. I'm in this position where I can give, and so give, 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 and then give some more was kind of our, our mantra um, in, in my household was, you know, give, 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 give some more. Who are you going to give to today? And there's always this nagging thing in my brain if you're not giving enough today. Who did you give to today? What, who did you help today? Who did you push forward? Um, I have a program that's called Bump Draft Consulting. I don't know if you're a NASCAR fan. I think you're a race fan, but it might be running. I don't know. Cycling. Yeah. 
So NASCAR and cycling, you get behind somebody and you decrease the drag on both of you by drafting. And then you can get in NASCAR, you'll actually get up in front of somebody and push them forward. And that will allow them sometimes to win a race or get the start they need or whatever. So I call it bump drafting because many of us think, oh, I'm just going to, I'll be encouraging to you. I'll draft for you, but I'm not going to push you ahead of me. And the whole idea is we've got to get other people ahead of us, whether we get behind them and we bump draft them or we reach behind us and we grab them and shove them in front of us and give them that push forward. We've got to be helping other people move forward. And this is where I think the military does better than some businesses because we know we have to work together as a team. We know we have to get other people stronger. We're only as strong in the Navy as our weakest link. So we have to try to get everybody better. And that sounds really trite and it sounds like a cliche, but you know, you're looking around and you're like, okay, where, you know, where are we good? Where are we not? And I'm not saying that everybody has to be strong in all areas. Absolutely not. But you have to look around and go, okay, that person is bad at this. Therefore, we're not going to put them in a position to fail. We're going to have them do this. This person's going to do that. And what people don't understand is when you have a business, you get to hire people based on what it is you need. That's not how it works in the military. You show up to work, people show up, you got to make it work. You don't get to hire people. And one, th- one third to one half of your people rotates out every single year. So just when you've got a really well-functioning team, everybody knows their job, one third of them are gone. Yeah, I mean, that happens a lot in business too, but not plans. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's, it's good to have a, a process in place to, to, to remedy that. Um, I'm, as I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm thinking about all the strengths you're bringing to, to the idea of a business. Um, you're great at, you love people, you're great working with people, you were confident in what you brought value wise. I'm curious though, how you felt about actually asking to get paid, you know? Oh, disastrous. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, give, you were just saying like, give, 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 and then give some more. And I know that feeling. I'm all about it. Like, I practice the philosophy of abundance wholeheartedly. And I think figuring out at what point do you say, hey, you know, do you want to hear what it's like to, to work together? Mm-hmm. You know, how did, how did you make that shift? Because you could have all the theory in the world, but in practice, you've got to some say, hey, will you pay me for the, for the value that I think I'm offering? That's right. And I'm fond of telling people that if you are not running a viable business, then it's not a business, it's a hobby. So you have to ultimately get paid. You know, you have to be... Uh, compensated. And again, on the econ brain, you can do this in a bar. It's really fun. You go, hey, anything worth doing is worth doing for money. Kind of connotes other things, but it's a lot of fun to do in a bar. And But that's the reality. For example, I know that I should consistently, um, you know, do social media postings and tweet and all that other stuff. Do I do it? No. But guess what? If I want it done, I pay somebody to do it. Now, if I relied on a volunteer to do it, it would not get done. But the fact is I have a paid professional doing it means it gets done. So if you want, if you take something seriously, it means get a professional and pay them. And that's the whole issue. So once you get beyond that in your head, once you realize uh, in order to be a professional, you must have a certain uh, structure. And that if you are not in a sustainable business, you're not sustainable, you can't help your family, you can't help your community, and you certainly aren't helping your employees if your business is going down the drain. So it helped me a lot when I had to do um, a couple programs on you know, how, to, how to build a business. 
And as it turns out, um, you know, advertising, marketing, sales, development, all that stuff, I like it. So wrote a book on it. Turned out pretty good for me. And then occasionally I would look at this and go, wow, this is great stuff. I, if I practiced more of this, I'd be even more successful. This is awesome. Um, sending out invoices made me feel wiggly until it didn't. And so it's been, um, what, 12 years, I guess. But getting those first invoices out, and I don't really, I, even now, I don't really like my clients associating me with a check. It's still just strange to me. So my, I have an assistant who does it for me. If you're not good at it in your business, hire somebody. That's the easiest thing ever. Delegate stuff you're bad at. Outsource it. Get somebody else to do it. Now I can do it no problem. But in the beginning, I really had a hard time. And because I was, I was still my civil servant, my military, you know, I'm not, first off, you're not allowed to be paid when you're in the military. But the second part is I shouldn't be paid because I am a government servant. And that was a little bit to get over for me. Now, now I'm good with it. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting mindset shift because clearly you had a great value to give away when you were in the military and then you showed up and you're still offering that same value. Mm -hmm. You realize now that people are getting paid Mm -hmm. and you need to be one of those people, you know, Mm -hmm. you you could be on the pro bono circuit for only so long before that's like you said, not a business. Um, It's just an expensive hobby. Yeah. The other part is that, that people value what they pay for. Absolutely. So, when when you are when somebody is paying a decent sum for you they tend to treat you better when you are free you are treated as free you are treated as not valuable and that's a big difference you know i've actually noticed that if you do a pro bono gig versus a discounted gig they actually treat you better if it's very clear that you know sometimes you choose to do pro bono for like mm-hmm. your own list of we reasons all do. right and when people know that you're normally paid X amount of money and you're offering it for free to them out of service, support, you know, mm-hmm. the love of, love of their mission, mm-hmm. they will still treat you with a lot of respect. They're not paying you. The exposure is not going to help you. That's not, you know, that's not about that. But when you discount yourself, they then treat you like that really is the amount of money you deserve and they lower their expectations and they lower their reputation that they think you have. And it's, I think, have you found that like to be true that sort of the money sort of equates sometimes how people sort of perceive you and and expect you to perform? I think it's not good when we put ourselves on the clearance rack. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a bumper sticker. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) Done. Everyone pay attention to that. I think that's (laughs) going to be tweeted. I will make sure of that. So, um, in the time that we have left, I I have a couple of sort of wrap up questions I'd love to have. And, um, I want to understand more, um, you know, in the last, you know, 12 years, you've developed a whole new list of people that you know. I mean, right, you're 100, you now could sit down and make a list of 100 people in a way that you, right, that you couldn't before, right? There's all these people you've given to that have been supporting you. How do you nurture and sustain not the inner circle, but that second and sort of third layers out? Like, what are your habits or philosophies, practices to make sure that that's happening on a regular basis? I try very hard uh, to write a thank you note every single day. I did it in the military. Um, Every Friday before I would go home, I would write a note to somebody. 
And I got to tell you, some days it was harder than others. I inherited one command and it was just a disaster. And so I was sitting down that Friday because I was raised by a mom who believed in thank you notes and I had my stack of Hallmark notes and I'm sitting there thinking, who do I thank? And I was like, "Um, okay, dear Robbie, thank you so much for coming into work this week, mostly in the right uniform and not lighting the building on fire. I mean, you know, I mean, sometimes you really struggle with the thank you. And my, my point there is there's always somebody you can thank. There's always somebody that you can just say, hey, um, a year, or if you don't have that, you, you just go, you know what? It crossed my mind that a year ago this month, we were at this event together. Or, and I just wanted to say, hi, I hope you're doing great. Don't be salesy. Don't be pushy. Just be grateful. And gratitude is a huge, huge part of what um, drives me, I think. So I do a thank you note pretty much every single day. Um, they're sitting here, right here. I've got mine already done for the day. They're all, you know, they're all right here. So there's that. Um, the other thing is I do have a newsletter that goes out every Tuesday. And that just is a touch point. So it's, and again, I don't care if you open it. I don't care if you read it. I don't care anything about that. It is just a touch point. It is just, hey, Mary. Hey, it's Mary. Hey. Mary. That's all I care about. So I try to offer things of value. I do have people who say, I look forward to your newsletter every week because that is what we use for our weekly meeting. Uh, so please keep it coming. So there's a little response and I'm like, oh wow, the pressure. Then there's responsibility, which frankly I like. Um, so I do that as well. Um, I also try to, I know it's a crazy idea, pick up the phone and I'm not that good at it. I've got other friends who are much better at it. Uh, but just to pick up the phone and say, Hey, just was thinking about you. I'm much better at it when I'm driving than anything else, but just picking up the phone. Hey, I was thinking about you. How's your, how's your life going? Is there anything I can do to help? That's it. Just let people know you care. And, um, the last thing is that when things go wrong in other people's lives, cause they always will right right now, we've got a lot of friends who came out of, uh, this period of, of the year and, you know, maybe they're lonely, maybe they're sad, maybe something happened. Um, showing up is really important when bad things happen. So you learn that in the military, that military people, when we lose somebody, we all show up. You didn't have to like them. You didn't have to know them, but you show up. And I think that's an important part of life is showing up when things get bad. Gosh, these are all amazing takeaways and very, you know, easy to implement. Uh, Writing a thank you card every day. I mean, if that sounds like a lot for people listening, start with one a week every Friday. You know, have a reflection moment and, and think about who you can send to. And I, I wanted to say that you are talking about physical mailed postal cards. You were just showing me one on the, on the video chat that we're on. Um, and I think there's something special about that because it, it's become a less common method of corresponding. And people, I mean, I have a few cards that are on my desk that I've received in the last few months. And I just don't know what to do with them because like, I, I don't want to throw them away. Because they're so, they feel special. Like the emails are easy to like remove. Like there's so many of those. So they have a permanency that a lot of times we don't have with, with email. And I'd love that you're underscoring the purpose of a phone. Uh, like that the mobile device we carry actually makes calls. We tend to forget that <laughs> that is actually one of its main functions. So um, really cool. Do you actually have a list of people that you are keeping in mind when you're thinking about who you want to reach out to for a call or send a thank you, or is it more of who you're, who's top of mind at that moment? I should be more organized about it. My goal this year is to be more organized about it. Um, but I tend to 
when you think about gratitude, you think about the person who helped me most recently. So it's really easy to thank the person who helped you last month. So sometimes it's easier to work backwards. So I've sent notes over, over this month of, you know, hey, thanks so much for bringing me in a couple of weeks ago. It was such a pleasure working with your people. Um, you know, here's a link to access all the resources I gave your folks. Please let me know if there's something I can help. Boom. Not hard. The hardest part is just the doing. It's pulling out the address, writing it, and then finding a stamp. And I asked, asked a group of people the other day, I said, do y'all even know how much a stamp is? And they're like, no, no, we don't actually know. So there's that. But you're right. People do keep cards and they matter. They mean something. And I think we are, we're looping back to that old style um, note writing. My, I have terrible handwriting. The nuns were always very, very upset about that. But now the worse your handwriting is, the better it is because they know that it didn't come from a computer. Yeah. So you kind of benefit from that. <clears throat> I'm actually glad you said that because I'm adding um, postal cards to my outreach this year in a, in a bigger way than I ever have. And I've always been self-conscious of my, my handwriting. You know, that was like my only grade that I got to see growing up. But I think you're right because if it's really perfect hand penmanship, then it's going to look like it's been, you know, done by a computer and there's something authentic about it being a little chicken scratchy as long as it's readable and and mine is it's just doesn't doesn't flow nicely um so this is my my wrap-up question it's one of my favorite questions and it's you know if we're meeting a year from now mary and we're toasting all of your successes in the previous year what are we going to be celebrating so on the professional side, I will be launching a new book called Who Comes Next? Leadership Succession Planning Made Easy on the 1st of March. Uh, that's a co-authorship with Meredith Elliott Powell, who's brilliant. Um, so that's very exciting. We have launched a coaching program that goes with that, which is exciting and fun. Um, I have another book that comes out in two weeks called uh, Five Minutes a Week, 52 Weeks to Building a Better Business happier teams, greater productivity, and less stress. And it's just a series of 52 of my top 10 forms. Again, that military brain with the process kicked right in. So I have all these forms that I use all the time in business, and I finally formalized them for something that other people can use. So I'm in the process of getting those into the online vault, getting that done. Um, you know, my dogs still know who I am, so that's pretty good. That's, that's a good thing in a year. I hope to take a great trip this year. I, I like to travel a lot. I don't have that mapped out exactly yet. Um, I was fortunate that my mastermind pushes me to um, think bigger. And when you think bigger, things like vacations don't always happen the way they should. But um, in terms of that, my friend uh, Peter Stark, I co-authored the uh, Why Leaders Fail book with him. His advice is always just buy the tickets. You have to buy the plane tickets because then you'll say no to everything else and you will get on that plane. So that's really good advice. So I hope a great trip. Um, the forums book will be launched. The, the Why Leaders, the Who Comes Next a book will be launched. And, you know, hopefully I get the opportunity to get in front of more audiences. And um, I would rather do that than anything. My, my uh, man in my life um, sometimes criticizes that. He's like, we need to take vacation. I'm like, but I can get a gig. So, <laughs> so it's, um, it's wonderful to be able to do what you do. I feel fortunate um, to have the friends I do, to have the life we do. I still like getting on planes. I still like the travel. And I still like showing up to events every single day like it's the first day of school, meeting new people. 
Well, I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you. It sounds amazing. And actually, this will be airing in early February. So one of those two books will already be out. In fact, this will brings me to my final question for you, which is how can people find you and follow your work? Thanks so much. It's ProductiveLeaders.com because who wants an unproductive leader? ProductiveLeaders.com. And if you do forward slash free, there's all kinds of free business tools, leadership tools, articles, forms, templates. I was using this as the cloud before there was a cloud so that I could find things and uh, share them with my clients. So ProductiveLeaders.com. And I'm Mary at Productive Leaders. So if you've got a question or a thought or you're thinking, wow, I got a problem. Mary might have one of the forms or plans that might fix that problem. Just shoot me an email. I would happy, happy to be happy to respond. That's brilliant. We'll have all those links, including your LinkedIn and your Twitter and links to your books on Amazon. We'll have all that in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Mary, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. You're so much fun, Robbie. Thank you so much. See you soon. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mary. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 180. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. Are you thinking about hosting a podcast in 2020? I created a free masterclass where I shared everything I learned launching my own show, over three and a half years ago. Now, nearly 200 episodes later, I can tell you it was a great decision for me and my business. Not sure if it's the right move for you? Check out Should I Host a Podcast Masterclass at robbysamuels.com forward slash masterclass and then reach out to schedule a chat. If you enjoyed this episode with Mary, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on the way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.